0: This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of the Royal Blue Podcast, and it's another stateside stateside special, I should say, there. Uh, uh, Joe Thomas, the only correspondent with the Blues throughout their North American uh, trip. He's now moved on to Minneapolis, enjoying the uh, sights and sounds of the Twin Cities there, ahead of... um, Everton's um, fixture with uh, um, Minnesota United uh, um, Wednesday evening going into the the early hours of Thursday for for us back home and um, also joined by Adam Jones and, like myself, uh, back in uh, Merseyside. I believe it's actually similar temperatures um, out there, Joe. But um, how was um, Saturday night? Obviously, the first... um, friendly match of um, the Frank Lampard's first summer in, in charge of Everton. Ultimately, it was a 2-0 defeat to Arsenal, but plenty to learn, I imagine, from that fixture.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, it was a kind of bizarre experience being there. Obviously, we're kind of, we're in America, so so very much like the American version of how sports are done. And, uh, you know, things like the pre-match stuff was just really interesting to watch and, and quite enjoyable, to be honest. We've got, you know, whole stadium stands for the National Anthem. You've got fireworks coming out the top of the stands. You've got planes flying over the top. <laughs> You've got the Everton players emerging from the tunnel by themselves to the Z cars with smoke machines billowing yeah. around them. I mean, personally, I think we could probably uh, adapt some of that for and Park, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, why can't, why can't we have... Or um, well, certainly when we get to Bramley Moore, why can't we have fireworks yeah. coming out the, uh, the top of the stands? Um, yeah, on, on the pitch be perfectly honest it was less enjoyable. Um, yeah. I think that you know, it feels like it's been a short summer. It doesn't feel like the end of last season was that long ago but obviously it finished on a high within context. Obviously I think at the start of last season we said staying up would become the main aim. Obviously everybody would have been disappointed with that but given where Everton found themselves it ended up being a success and, and we finished with positivity. Um, the first game of pre-season was not about form it was about fitness and i think it was about to a degree experimentation to a degree you know we have to remember the frontland part only came in january and, and there are a number of players um who he, he just hasn't seen anything of when it comes to to 90-minute matches the likes of Nkunku and um uh Akabamin among those um so it was it was never really going to be about the the result as such um but for the first half in particular, I think there were you know, a few concerns. and I think it just was a bit of a reminder that even after the break and even after, obviously, uh, some of those players who dealt with injury issues throughout last season might have had a chance to recover a bit more. But obviously, Everton yeah, is still a work in progress. And I think it'll be a case of patience at the start of the season. But there'll be a lot more work that'll be done over the course of the next few weeks um, but it's going to be a gradual build because obviously it's still the same squad, which perhaps still has some of the same vulnerabilities that um, that existed at the parts of last season.
1: Yeah. I mean, Adam, as Joe's alluded to there, it's it's more about um, fitness than form at this stage. But what sort of takes did you bring back from, from that first fixture? I mean, were you concerned by what you saw to, to any degree?
2: Um. I think perhaps the only thing that would concern me is Everton's still looking pretty weak on set pieces. And I think, yeah. you know, that's something that we've talked about for a long time on this podcast now. you know, there, there seemed to be a brief sort of period a couple of years ago where Everton seemed to sort out their issues. But this has been a really long-standing problem that you know, numerous managers haven't really been able to solve with Everton squads in the past. And, you know, perhaps that's something that is going to be worked on. Uh, a little bit more over the course of the summer, but you know that that's something that you imagine they can work on. Well, they probably were working on throughout the end of last season as well. So the fact that the players still don't seem to be picking up, you know, sort of the basics of whatever whatever set piece system, system especially defensively, uh, that the that the coaching team are trying to put down. Uh, that 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 was maybe a, the only little bit of a concern for me. Uh, as you say, it was what it's more about fitness than anything else at this stage, isn't it? You know, I wasn't expecting a side that Natalie avoided relegation last season to suddenly turn things around, especially mm. after, you know, their their only signing was a free transfer from Burnley and they've lost their best player mm. uh, over the course of this summer as well. So, you know, it, it was always going to take time for, you know, these sort of intricate bits of play and uh, whatever Whatever you you might think like that, you know it's it's always going to take time across a summer for that to to really show itself. I think, and, you know it's it's not meant to be perfect at this stage of a summer in terms of you know strategic play and you know, coaching and stuff like that. So there's a lot of time that can still be worked on with this. Uh, I think the second half showed uh, a lot more promising signs than the first half. Uh, some of those youngsters that came on a halftime, in particular, I think, will have given Frank Lampard. You know some in, intriguing food for thought. I think mm-hmm. all of them were were actually very good in their own in their own sort of right uh, when when they were introduced into the fray and you know they they stood up to what was you know still a tough test against Arsenal at the end of the day. Arsenal, I think that was their third pre season match of the summer already, so mm-hmm. they were always going to be ahead in their preparations. So you know the the fact that Everton were given a real competitive. Uh, match as shown by you know james tark obviously getting into Ooh. getting into a bit of fisticuffs towards the end of the game getting it uh, getting it ended a tiny bit early uh yeah the fact that everton were given sort of a competitive game i think is the most important thing there. Uh given a right run around by a team that really like to dominate possession so yeah i think it was it, it it gave me a lot more positives than it gave negatives to be honest because i was never really going to be looking at the the overall performance or the display in too much detail. It was more about whatever they're going to learn from that. And I think the test that Arsenal gave them, I think it'll stand them in good stead for the rest of the summer.
1: Yeah. And um, Joe, what about the, the tactical formation, because obviously there's been a lot of talk of whether he's going to be revenge to a flat back four or this back three that um, Frank seems to, to favour. He did go with the three, but are you able to describe how, how it sort of lined up in, in front of that three? Because there's an interesting midfield combination.
0: Yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it was a, quite an interesting one because I think at the back end of last season, obviously, the the priority was getting results. And with the players that he had at his disposal, including with the injury issues that he had, I think everyone can understand why why Frank got to a position where he was playing three you know, centre-backs um, and playing in a way that obviously conceded a lot of possession and and, and trying to kind of hit teams on the on the break and absorb a lot of pressure first i think obviously the hope is from everyone i think frank included in this is that things can be a bit more progressive going forward but ultimately he has the same personnel and at the minute he has a squad which has got well i mean its strongest area is its center backs you know he's he got even with um Bramfway moving out to, to psv he's He's got a, a huge amount of options there. Obviously, Tarkovsky came in, uh, and then there's other players a, around him. It was a kind of a, a, an intriguing style of, of, of play on on Sally in, in front of him. So obviously, you got Dominic Albert Lewin, who was essentially the, you know, the the focal point of the attack. Um, but behind him, they almost lined up as a four. Obviously, you know, Deli Ali isn't really a, a, a wide midfielder. Mm. Um, you know, he had he had Tom Davis and Damari and, and Gray and in that in, in in there as well. It was almost hard to kind of see what the intent was to some extent yeah. because Arsenal pinned them back so much. Um you know, DeCorey, the other midfielder, certainly played a kind of the box to box role that we knew he was in the thick of it on the edge of both areas. Um but I wouldn't read too much into I I, I think what he was probably doing with his formations on Saturday was trying mm-hmm. to basically give as many players an opportunity to play in something similar to what their preferred position would be. So we could just have a look at them. Mm-hmm. Um I don't think the five four one which we kind of went with the other day would would, would probably be the, the, the main one. Certainly because I think as we we saw similar problems emerge to the end of our season where essentially and, and because partly because of the quality opposition, partly because of the the game time they'd already had you end up with, with with Calvert-Lewin just really being stranded up there by himself and and that was a feature of last season which was kind of mitigated by the fact that Richarlison was just such an absolute dynamo that he almost you know he almost played two roles in that team and 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 he linked the midfield to the attack even when there was a gulf between them just because of how much running he'd do and how much fighting he would do um so i think when we look back on, on Saturday, obviously it was intriguing to see five at the I, I call it five at the back. Um, obviously with three centre-backs. I think Frank was quite telling in his comments afterwards that this is a style that he perhaps doesn't want to play if he can avoid it. But at the minute with the personality he's got available, that's probably what he has to lean towards at the moment. Um, and obviously I, I think it's also important just saying that that first half, obviously, it was disappointing. But again, it wasn't. It was a mix and match of of, 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 40, of teams for 45. Obviously, players that you'd expect to be in that first in that starting eleven come the start of the season were saved for the second half as well. So the experiment, the experimental element was in, in both halves. Um, so tactically, I probably wouldn't read too much into it other than the fact that well, it was you know, quite clear that, that Evan certainly in the market for some midfielders a a number six. Whether it be a number six that emerges from the academy and has a breakthrough year, or whether it be a number six that can be, you know, found and brought in, I think there's there's a gap there for a kind of a holding midfielder there's an opportunity there for someone to take it. And as Adam says just then, the young players that came that second 45 was was quite different. And um, some of these young players, I thought Stanley Mills was excellent in particular. Um, You know, Lewis Warrington looked composed on the ball. um, And and Reese Welch made a couple of decent interventions as well. So, I mean, there there was promise from that that aspect as well. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.
2: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check.
1: You've both mentioned the young players. Uh, going back to you, Adam, you obviously watched a lot of the under-23s last season. Your capacity with the, the echo and you'll have seen more than the than, than most, really. I mean, uh, we mentioned uh, Billy Crelin probably only got his chance. Obviously, Asmir asked me Begovic had the injury, so he got an opportunity there. Um, Stanley Mills mentioned, Reece Welsh, Welch, uh, Lewis Warrington. Do you think it could be an opportunity for, for the, some of these players um, this coming season, given the, what Frank Lampard did at Chelsea?
2: I don't see why not. To be honest, I think uh, Welch in particular is quite interesting to me now, especially now that Jared Branthwaite has gone on loan to PSV, which I think is a, a really good loan move for him in itself. Uh, I think he's going to, you know, be able to hone in on his actual style of football by going to the Dutch league rather than going to somewhere like the Championship. I think it just it just suits him down to the ground uh, a lot better. But in turn, I think that does open up a, a potential for another young centre back to. Perhaps stake their claim in uh, in the first team sort of squad, and Rhys Welch is somebody who's been training with the first team, particularly for you know months and months now. He he he's almost a regular at Finch Farm with a with the senior squad. Uh, as as Joe quite rightly said, I think he he made some really vital interventions uh, throughout the second half against Arsenal. I think he just carries himself like a first team player. Whenever you watched them for the 23s last last year. You know, there was a selection of those 23s players who you just think to yourself, all right, well, they're too, they're already too good for this level of football. Brandthrite was certainly one of them when he was playing down there. And Welch, you know, fast became one of them as well. You could see that he was benefiting from playing with the first team. His his speed of thought is very quick when he's on the ball. He reads the game very well for somebody of his age. You know, he's obviously got the physical attributes about him as well. Uh, I think he's just got a lot, a lot of talent to uh to show. So, you know, Frank Lampard will obviously uh, look into that. He'll probably look at how comfortable uh Reese looked when he when he did play against, you know, what was still a tough test in that uh, in that second half against Arsenal. And I think, you know, particularly now that Brantwick's gone, there might be a couple of opportunities opening up for him there. Stanley Mills is an interesting one because you know Frank Lampard's comments after the game seem to suggest that he does see him as sort of A wing back, and if not a wing back, maybe perhaps at like a number eight in midfield. He did play wing back a little bit for the twenty threes last season, but he was more used as a winger, uh, which is, you know, it's it's quite interesting. I think his attacking attributes are are there for everybody to see whenever you do get a chance to, uh, to look at him a bit more regularly. Uh, His defensive work certainly improved for the twenty threes last year. I think once he got his positioning right as a as a wing back, then. You know, he was, I think he shows in that little 45 minutes that he got against the Arsenal, he's, he's not one to back down from any sort of challenges or anything like that, uh, which I think is always is always promising to see. So it'd be interesting to see if even he gets uh, a couple of chances, uh, depending on... It. Well, it, it, it goes back to formation, I suppose. It depends on what formation the Lampard's going to play. If if we are going to move to a sort of three in midfield, will, will Stanley Mills see himself as one of the you know, potential box-to-box midfielders? At some point further down the line, you know, uh, it, I think it's possible, but I think it, maybe he'd be competing with Lewis Warrington. Weirdly enough, in that yeah. in that sort of role, because that's that's the kind of position that Warrington was playing when he was on loan at Tranmere last season, and he got a lot of joy from that. You know, he was playing more as a defensive midfielder for the twenty threes last year, but uh he, he he got that sort of new opportunity at Tranmere to play that little bit further forward and he seemed to enjoy it a lot more, enjoys getting in and around the box a little bit more. So, yeah, I, th- I think there could be interesting opportunities for a lot of youngsters and that's not even including the likes of, you know, Lewis Dobbin, for for example, who didn't get on the pitch uh, against Arsenal. It'd be very interesting to see uh, what the what the next sort of year holds for him as well. So, yeah, that, like Lampard, as you say, is somebody who's brought through young, talented Chelsea, whether that was because it was forced upon him, given Chelsea's transfer issues at the time or not? Well, that, I think that's a that's a debate to be had, I suppose. But I think throughout his time at Everton, he's, ne- he's never shied away from uh, bringing through these youngsters when they've deserved it. So, you know, if they if they can keep performing on the training pitch and they keep grabbing their chances like they did against the Arsenal, then uh, you know, I think the the opportunities are certainly there for them when
1: the season starts. Yeah, and Joe, I mean, you have mentioned the one new signing they have brought in already, James Tarkovsky, um, showing that sort of competitiveness that uh, that we all hoped to see from him, you know, if in a controlled way, hopefully. Um, Jordan Pickford, proud moment for him again, leading the team out as captain. There's been shouts already that Tarkovsky's a potential Everton captain, you know, he's only just started... Um, with, with the Blues, um, what sort of debut was it? And did you, did, did you get many hints then that it would be the right sort of player to sort of fill that void for Everton that's
0: been lacking in recent years? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the thing with Tarkovsky is we've all been able to watch him for so long that we know exactly what he he brings to a team. Yeah. Um, so there probably isn't really any any mystery to him you know, we know that he is uh, you know, a strong player, you know, you can take no nonsense, you can fight for himself and fight for those around him. He's, he's obviously got a lot of leadership qualities as well. And, and but kind of, but he has aggression, but it's controlled aggression. Yeah. You know, he's a, you know, he's, he's intelligent with it. He knows what he's doing. Obviously, we saw that in the way that he, he stuck up for, for Stanley Mills in the closing minutes. And I think that kind of, Aggressive confidence that is still con- still controlled it is something that would really benefit that Everton side uh, this season. I think it, last season Everton really struggled to impose themselves on teams, not just not just tactically, but also physically. Um, a lot was said about a lack of leaders, which the more we hear as the dust has settled from last season the more you kind of start to to question a little bit. You know, it sounds like there were this huge personality. Obviously, we we all know about what's been said about Seamus Coleman. Um, but Pickford, you know, he really came to the fore himself. And some of the players behind the scenes as well, and Ross Townsend, seems to have been quite, quite pivotal. I suppose the, the problem was getting those players on the pitch because, yeah. you know, Townsend was injured, Coleman was in and out. And... Yeah, Pickford's obviously at, at at the back. It's gonna be a really interesting one to see if Coleman misses the start of the season. And you know, obviously it sounds like he's touch and go as he recovers from the surgery that he had a couple of weeks ago. It will it'll be interesting who Frank goes forward, give the captain's arm because obviously Pickford is you know obviously gonna start. It's very difficult to see how Tarkovsky doesn't go straight into that back. Two or about three, whatever it is, by the end of or by by the uh, August the sixth. Um, so you have two contenders there straight away, uh, which will only be only be a positive thing, I think for 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 Everton. I think having the the consistency of someone like Tarski, Tarkovsky, sorry, who should be there for thirty games plus next season if everything goes well. He's done that five years in a row in the Premier League for mm. for Burnley and. You know, one of the things that undermined Everton last season was the fact that there were so many injuries sort of starting 11 kept on changing. Everton need a core of players throughout that team that are there for you know, game in, game out and, and hopefully for leaders to be among them. And then Pickford and then Tarkovsky, you already start to see a, you see a spine start to emerge there. Obviously, Calvert-Lewin will be a focal point at the top. Um, and if, if somebody could emerge in the centre midfielders, as a standout leader, you can take that forward, then, and I think that would that would really help as well. So I think you know, Tarkovsky. There were a lot of positives. There were no surprises with Tarkovsky, but it was still good to see him doing what we know he can do, just in a blue shirt.
1: Yeah, And Adam, we we obviously heard Frank Lampard's comments about uh, a desire for a, a number six after the game. You mentioned the youngsters there, but obviously there were the players who come back from loan spells. Niels Nkong, who have been a uh, um, standard liaisers over in Belgium. And Jean-Philippe Gabamin, um, I mean, a £25 million sign-in, spell over there in Russia in recent months. I mean, you could, I say could, have a ready-made number six there, ready to go, a, a, a huge surprise. Um, but is there any way back for somebody like him? I mean, he certainly had the ability before he came to Everton, and we just haven't seen it yet.
2: Yeah, it, it, it continues to intrigue me this because when I read those comments from Frank Lampard after the Arsenal game, that I, I did instantly think, oh, that's a bit of a punch in the gut to Gabamon, surely, because we've like we've said on this podcast for you know the last few months now that Gabamon is the is the only real number six mould that we've that we've got. You know, Alan has been playing there and I think he can play there quite well on occasion, but he's not really he's not really that sort of moulded player. But when we signed John philippe Gabamon back in 2019, that's what he was meant to be. He was he was meant to be essentially the replacement in the squad for Idrissa Guy. Like, now, he wasn't meant to be the exact same sort of you know, style of player as Idrissa Guy, but uh, he was meant to take up that sort of defensive midfield role in the squad. Obviously, we know the, the reasons why that hasn't happened. But, you know, it, it'd be interesting to... Maybe speak to Kabaman about this because you know it'd be interesting to see where his head was at when he was playing well on loan for CSKA Moscow. He was getting minutes under his belt, which is something that he hasn't been able to do for a sustained period of time for quite a while now. So it'd be interesting to see if he was thinking to himself, Oh, okay, this is me playing my way into back into Everton's plans, or maybe he's trying to play his way into a move. Who knows? But you know, those comments from Frank Lampard seem to suggest that he's not really thinking of. Jean-Philippe Gabamon as being that defensive midfielder. And if you're not thinking of him as that defensive midfielder, then what are you going to do with him for the season? Like it, Essentially, I just don't think there's any point in keeping him around if you're not going to use him in that in a sort of number six role. I don't think he, he necessarily works. I think he did all right against Arsenal, don't get me wrong, but I don't think he necessarily works in a midfield two, uh, especially at the Premier League level. I just don't think he's... He's naturally mobile enough to be able to get him ra- get around the pitch. Uh, well, he, he could prove me wrong now that he's had yeah. uh, got himself up to match fitness in, at CSKA. But from what I've seen of him, I don't think he's naturally uh, mobile enough to get around the pitch at a Premier League level uh, in a midfield two. I think he does need an extra body in there with him to actually get the best out of him. If he was going to be playing in midfield three, um, if he wasn't playing in that number six role. Maybe you could see him in a in a in a box the box position. I'm not really sure how good he is uh, in and around the box. Perhaps perhaps he shows that that kind of thing in training, and maybe that's what Frank Lampard is looking at. But I do highly doubt it. And I, I think I think those Lampard comments seem to suggest to me that maybe a move is going to be on the cards for Gabamon, and whether that's going to be another loan or maybe looking for a permanent switch this time. Uh, uh, I I don't think that would necessarily come as a surprise to anybody that, you know, after three years of essentially stagnation after his move, obviously not his fault uh, in a lot of senses, but, you know, it is three years still of stagnation. It was a lot of money that I have spent on him and they still need that replacement for Idrissa Guy's influence in the squad uh, three years on. So, I I think it would probably be best for all parties to just, you know, to cut ties here and find a new move for him and you know, hopefully you will be able to have similar game time as he got at CSKA Moscow somewhere else. And, you know, I think that would be certainly a benefit to him.
1: The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Joe, we've mentioned already that you are the only uh, reporter out there for, for um, the, the entirety of the Blues' time in, in the US. Just want to ask you, uh, it was a big occasion for the Baltimore, Washington DC area having this game over there. Just your, your thoughts on how that went for the travelling Evertonians, and now that the fact that you've moved on to the Midwest there to to Minnesota, just uh, what it what it's like there and how things are settling in over there.
0: Yeah, well, um say so the only yeah, the only dedicated Everton report that'll be there here for the whole trip. That's no. certainly the case. Um, yeah, Baltimore was was really interesting because I mean the the players are based in Washington D.C. Uh, and obviously you know, it's the U.S. capital. So there's, there's a lot going on there, and, and a sports team's visit, British sports team visit, isn't the kind of isn't as 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 significant as it might be be elsewhere. It's very much a like a business professional focused city, and Evan were able to or have been able to kind of almost enjoy a little bit of time in the background really, which would have suited them, you know, just a little bit of freedom to kind of move around without being being mobbed by people or anything like that. And just have a, a calm start to pre-season, just almost behind the scenes. You then get to Baltimore and the place was just full of blues. You know, yeah. I, I got into my hotel and then the group of blues followed me in um here the, the the facility was it was just a constant case of seeing um people in everton shirts and then walking around i mean i actually went on uh the saturday morning to um to one of the local parks where there was a, a gathering of, of, of Blues blue supporters so you had people like the you know the baltimore blues and carolina and south carolina blues all the, all the different fan groups coming from all the you know place from from new york and and all sorts kind of making the effort to come over and and, and meet like-minded people that had all fallen in love with Everton. Uh, and it was, it was great to see because, you know, it's clearly um, a lot of passion for Everton out here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that was replicated on, on Saturday afternoon before the game, you walk around the, the harbour area, the tourist area, there was, again, just loads of Everton shirts. Obviously some have made the journey over from Merseyside and, um, but a lot of them have traveled across, across the U.S. And before the game, they had a, a tailgate and a, um, like a, an event inside there, I think it's the Firefighters Union, and it was just packed. Like, there was just hundreds of Everton fans, all just absolutely buzzing to be there. Um, yeah, the blue pyro was back, which my lungs probably weren't too pleased oh. for. Um, but yeah, it, but it was great to see. I mean, it, there were a lot of Arsenal fans there as well. It was quite strange actually because I, I was a little bit surprised because throughout the morning and afternoon and you in the tourist area. It was just, it was the Blues dominating and we turned up at the yeah. ground. And even Arsenal had a, their own kind of pre-match event. But it, when I went past, it, it didn't look anywhere near as busy as yeah. the Everton one. And, and in fact, by the time we got to um, closer to the kickoff, there were a few Arsenal fans seeping into the Everton one. I don't know if that was because it was better or just because okay. of friendship groups dividing their time between the two, perhaps. But um yeah, you know, that Everton obviously they their ninth trip since 2004. They're clearly paying a lot of attention to the North American market, and yeah, there's a lot of Premier League clubs are battling to do that. And obviously, Everton's success ultimately, you know, no one's stupid, it is, is going to largely depend on success on the pitch. You need to start winning stuff if it's going to start capturing, you know, the, the hearts and minds of, of huge swathes of. American football supporters who haven't yet made their mind up. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely to say, fair to say that Everton have a, a real footprint over here. Obviously, that comes from, you know, the history, comes from expats, comes from all sorts. But also, you know, a lot of American football fans, their entry points into the market come via an Everton route. You know, a lot of them support Everton from, from London Donovan's line there. A lot of them from Tim Howard. Tim Howard's one of the kind of the most... On the present personalities, I think on American TV when it comes to to football, um, and then even through things like last week, there's the Men in Blazers podcast, which is hugely popular over here for, for Premier League uh, you know, football fans. Uh, head you know, co of that, Roger Bennett's a, a massive blue. He's he's you know from from Merseyside, so you know there's a lot of work being done to grow Everton over here, and you know it's, it's clearly having some success now. It would obviously have a lot more success I think if, if ever become more successful on the pitch hopefully that that will come but the efforts aren't being wasted you know it's a, there's a big there's a big blue support out here and it's a very passionate and knowledgeable one and it's you know, been a real privilege to get to speak to so many of those people and meet them and see them in action since we've been over here yeah
1: and uh, Adam in this uh, what is it, a record breaking the hot day potentially for the UK, uh, a lot of people might want to corn it. And it seems that um, <laughs> see we're going with this one. Um, Everton might be no different. Or say, Cornet, as I imagine they would pronounce it there, over, over in, in France, where he obviously came from the French League. The Ivory Coast International, Maxwell Cornet, the latest name being linked with the Blues. I mean, it's, it's an, in, an intriguing one, isn't it? Because he's going back to Burnley again and we obviously got the whole issue with them and James Tarkovsky in the relegation okay. battle, oh, but he was a player who really had a big impact in his first season in, in English football, despite it, the, the struggles of the team he was playing and not least that game at Turf Moor that all three of us went to, unfortunately, <laughs> and scored that, that late winner that night.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think he like I saw a stat that he only played about fifty one percent of Burnley's minutes in the Premier League last season. So the mm-hmm. fact that he still managed to get uh, to get nine goals was, you know, pretty pretty impressive. I think it was only one behind Richarlison in terms of Premier League numbers in that respect. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, it, it, I think he is a really interesting sort of prospect, isn't he? Because I think on the pitch, you can you can see exactly why Everton would be interested in him. He's very versatile, I think. For a start, he can play off both flanks, can play through the middle. He play, uh, can play play left back as well. I think uh, at some stage last season for Burnley. So he offers cover in a in a wide sort of variety of positions. Uh, I think he's I think he's creative. I think he's he's actually got got a little bit of consistency in front of goal. Uh, it's important. That Everton have seen that he can adapt well to the Premier League as well. I think he's got, I think he's got the kind of fitness levels that Everton would want him to have for a uh, for the Premier League because you know Everton want to be uh, well. Frank Lampard said he wanted wanted Everton to be robust. He you know he wants Everton. I think it's probably it probably makes sense that he'd want Everton to be a bit more high pressing, bit bit quicker with themselves in possession. And I think Corne hopefully would be able to fit into that mould. I think. The interesting thing, as you alluded to, is the fact that it's it's Burnley. Burnley have got some uh, some issues behind the scenes with Everton and, and their finances, haven't they? So it's very interesting to see how negotiations might go in this sort of deal. Reports have recently suggested that Everton's first approach was uh, a loan with an option to buy at the end of it, and that's reportedly been uh, been rejected. Uh, I think the Daily Mail are reporting today that Everton are going to prepare like a second bid, which would be just a permanent deal from the off uh, there's rumours that there's a 17 million release clause but i think that would all depend for me for me personally it all depends on whether like that release clause would have to be paid all up front i just don't think everton have got the capacity at the minute to be spending 17 million on somebody up front in this transfer window i think they need to i think they just need to be a little bit smarter uh, maybe it'll take a bit more time to go through deals like this in the uh, uh, in this window, but this is this is them reaping what they sow. Essentially, this is this is all down to the mistakes and the failures that they've made over the course of the last few years. Uh, the money that's been absolutely squandered uh, over the last few years is is coming back to haunt them a little bit, and they've got to be they've got to be a little bit cleverer in this transfer window to try and get. These sorts of deals, they can't just go to Burnley. Oh yeah, go on, we'll give you the seventeen million that you want. You know, it, it does take a little bit of negotiation, a little bit of haggling. And um, you know, I, I have seen a few, a few people, uh, a little bit worried in, in in that sense that you know might be losing out on their targets. Obviously, we've seen reports today as well that Armando Broja's is reportedly close to uh, joining West Ham United as well. Another one that is. You know, in quotation mark one that got away for Everton, but if he's if he was going to have cost twenty five million up front, that's that's too much money. That's as as it stands, it's just too much money. So, yeah, Everton are for are being forced to be a little bit more clever in this transfer window, I suppose, with the way that they do things. But I'm not I'm not necessarily opposed to that. I think essentially Everton should have been doing this. Yeah. years and years ago trying to try and negotiate the best price for someone it seems it seems simple but everton just weren't doing that a few years ago and this is this is the price that they've got to pay now but you know if 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 there is a sort of amicable deal that can be made for somebody like corne i think it you know it, it makes a lot of sense i, th- I don't think he's going to be you know necessarily a like for like Richarlison replacement but no. you can you can certainly see that he'd replace a lot of the influence that Richarlison has left behind. So I'd be all for it if, if the price was right.
1: Yeah. I mean, Joe, we've mentioned already, this is now the, the, the second and final leg of Everton's US trip that you've, you've moved on to, the game against Adrian Heath's um, Minnesota um Coming up, you spoke to Frank Lampard. I mean, did he seem concerned to you? Is he frustrated with this this transfer situation? I mean, how do you see it um, playing out Flahert Machiri, of course? The owner came out and said, judges at the end of the transfer window.
0: Yeah, and like we said in the last podcast, I think that's fair. You know, I think we're operating in a, a changing world with, with football finances. And I think that you know, I mean, on Cornet, I think he's a sensible deal, um, you know, and I'd like to think that, I mean, I know there are issues with, with profit and sustainability, but, you know, if if he does have a £17.5 million release clause, I think that's something that Evan would probably be able to find a way to, to meet that if they need to. I, 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 think, I think the issue is Evan can't spend anything over this summer. They just probably have a very limited kind of they probably have a very set budget and it's a case of what they use the money towards and you know if they if they pay everything up for, for Cornet up front then that perhaps then eats into you know a second signing for a similar price or you know or or the fees that you can pay to secure loan deals yeah, they, they certainly don't have multiple you know tens of millions of pounds to to, to you know, signings that they, they can make i think with you know with, with corner he like adam says there's there are a lot of positive attributes there. Um, yeah, you we know, definitely strengthens the side. I think it's just sensible business. I think, yeah, you know, I think Richardson's a better player. And I know they're not the same player, but I think they're quite similar players. Would you say, you know, if, if you work on Richardson as a sixty million package as, as we've reported, and you work on Cornet as a 17.5 million one if he's got the rele- the release clause that we think he has. Would you say half forty-two and a half million pounds better than Cornet? I probably wouldn't. You know, I, I think that's you know, if you come away with Cornet in a forty-two and a half million pound profit, even if it is that going that is then going into sorting out the you know the, the finances, the finances, rather than all being spent. I think that's actually some some pretty good business. Um, but obviously, there needs to be wiggle room for, for for further business as well. You know, which I, I don't think Frank's under any illusions about that. I think any of the supporters are either, but I do think that. Yeah, when you look at the transfer market at the moment, it's probably been quite a few deals that are almost holding up the market. And I think, you know, you, you look how long you know Rafinha to Barcelona dragged on for. Or you know, you look at the situation, you know, Brogier and, and where he's going. Obviously, you know, Chelsea are a club that have been all over the place this this summer. You haven't know, have to be savvy. And I think for a big part of the situation they're currently in is for perhaps. Going for players without having done due diligence, perhaps being, you know, attracted to the the shiny player with the, you know, with the silver boots and the big price tag, and you're know, not doing their homework and just going straight for it. You know, the result of that is is where we are right now. I think it would be difficult. While I can understand why supporters would want to see players coming in as soon as they possibly could, and why I can understand that they'd want them to be before the season rather than during the transfer window after the season. Yeah, I think. There has to be a degree of, of, of pragmatism, and I think it would be a little bit hypocritical, perhaps, to be criticising the past policy of you know spending everything you know, big, big sums on questionable players, and then also criticising what is hopefully a case of a slower start to the window because of due diligence, sensible operating, trying to negotiate in a way that favours Everton at the moment, even if that does mean the players come later. Um, which hopefully the, the silence, the light silence at the moment is is representative of. Hopefully it's it's not a case of there's not things happening. I think things are very, very busy. Frank said things are very busy between him and, and, and Kevin Fairwell at, at the moment. And hopefully that's busy with, with making progress and yeah, identifying targets and having talks with clubs and hopefully getting some towards the you know some towards getting uh, towards getting some over the line. So You know, I mean, I think there will be incomings. Um, Hopefully, they'll be first choice targets rather than having to move on to second and thirds. I think Everton understand that they need new players. Um, How many? You know, I I, I don't know where their thinking is on that, but I'd be I'd be shocked if nobody else came in in the coming weeks.
1: Okay, well, um, obviously, like we've mentioned, this is one more game to go in the US. That's so another late night for Adam, and Joe's um, just now adjusting to a new time zone as well. But yeah, Minnesota United versus Everton officially Wednesday night over there, but it's 1 a.m. in the morning for us, so follow the Echoes Live blog on that one. And then it's uh, onto a very different sort of change of scene uh, next weekend on the Sunday when uh, Everton go to Blackpool, so uh, there's plenty to uh, look forward to there, and another summer trip by the seaside for our correspondents and the, the Everton travelling fans. So, it's been the Royal Blue Podcast. I've been your host, Chris Beasley, have been joined by Adam Jones and Joe Thomas out there in the USA. And a good afternoon to all of you and uh, keep safe in that sunshine.
0: You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.